Great is God's faithfulness unto each of those of his children. Great is God's faithfulness to his church. And um, as we've already seen, this is um, just a time of a lot of emotion here at Fellowship Baptist. And um, that's a good reminder, Wayne. Thank you so much for selecting that song to sing this morning as a reminder of God's great faithfulness. Well, I'll encourage you, if you have a copy of God's Word, to take and turn and go back to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. As I was contemplating the message this morning, I thought, well, it's right before Thanksgiving, so we could now just have a Thanksgiving message. As we've finished up the Gospel of John and preaching through the Gospel of John verse by verse, and we're kind of in this limbo of um, what we're going to do, and um, I've got an idea of what's going to happen in the new year. But we're going into the Christmas season and so forth, and, and um, I thought that might be something that we would do. However, I think in light of um, the circumstances and so forth, that I, I decided and my heart was, was moved to come back to this uh, idea of baptism, because that is uh, what we experience today as a, as a local church uh, family, and just to kind of review once again uh, what baptism is really all about. Um, it is always kind of interesting uh, when you start looking at this, what people have to say about it. You may or may not know that the word baptism is found 120 times in the New Testament. Now, it's not the word baptism, but rather it would be the Greek word baptizo, or a noun or verb variation of that sort of thing, baptizo. And that should kind of give you an indication that the word baptism is what you call a transliteration. That is, you take a Greek word and you bring it right over into English because they didn't know necessarily just what to do in its translation. And I suppose that if they would have done that, at least according to what's called Art and Gingrich in the Greek lexicon, there would be some upset, uh, upset people. And in the day and age that there were some translations, they wouldn't have liked it because uh, the word baptism means to dunk. And so, hence, we did, I had the opportunity to dunk Ann uh, today, and uh, we did immersion. But there's lots of denominations and groups that do not do dunking. And, um, and so it'd be kind of funny if it says, go into all nations dunking people, but you don't want to dunk, you do some other form. So they just brought the word over. It's kind of the diplomatic way to handle some division maybe in the early church. But it's found 120 times. But also, the word baptism does not refer, in that 120 times, always to water baptism or to baptism actually even in the church. That the word baptism has a lot of other things. You might find it interesting that there is a Jewish um, a context in which baptism is used, but it has usually translated washing. And, um, and so when they would refer to, you know, in a sense of the dunking of the hands or the washing and so forth, that the word baptism is sometimes used uh, in that particular way, especially in a Jewish context. Um, then there is the term of um, uh, another where baptism is seen as something of a spiritual nature. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 12 and verse 13, that we are all baptized into one body by one spirit, and that refers to spirit baptism. Now, in our day and age, again, with denominational distinctions and all of that, there are those that would take spirit baptism as uh, saying that that is evidenced by maybe uh, char uh, uh, the gifts of the, 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 charis the charisma, um, the, the sign gifts. And so they would say that that needs to be demonstrated, baptism of the spirits demonstrated by speaking in tongues and the like. 
Um, we would take another vein on that. The spirit baptism is that spiritual action that takes place when a believer accepts Christ and Christ alone as your, as your Savior, and you are baptized into the body by one spirit. Because in that text, in 1 Corinthians, it says that uh, we have all been baptized by one spirit. And so not everybody has ever been baptized. There have been people who have died trusting Christ and uh, were never baptized. Now, the proverbial illustration is the guy, um, the, the thief dying on the cross, and when Jesus said, today I will see you in paradise, and uh, he wasn't baptized. And then there are those, I think it's tongue-in-cheek. Uh, there may be a few that actually believe it, but a few tongue-in-cheek that those who would practice sprinkling say, and it was at that time that God brought a cloud over the cross where he was, and he got sprinkled. I don't think that that happened, but even if it did, that, that would be a unique kind of a baptism. But it's the idea of spirit baptism, and it's something that, that places us into the body that every believer on the Lord Jesus Christ, every true Christian, and for those that have not spoken in tongues, you can't say that that's the evidence of it, because there are many who would profess Christ that have never spoken in tongues or demonstrated those gifts. In Matthew chapter 3, and verse 11, the term baptism is used that Jesus talks about a baptism of fire. Well, there's a lot of interpretations and what that could be, but I think of the fact of uh, temptation and martyrdom, and um, um, uh, the, the, you know, we're in the world, not of the world, and this world did not love Jesus, and Jesus taught. Don't be surprised if this world doesn't like you. It didn't like me um, either, uh, basically. And, um, and so there is a baptism of fire. Let me also say that probably, historically, in church history from the first century that the the trail of blood of martyrs has issued an awful lot because of the doctrine of baptism there are those who um, really don't mind if you show some credence and some niceties towards jesus but they know that when a person is baptized then that person really it means business and for example, uh, we even have one here with us today, uh, one from uh, Saudi Arabia that was in a Muslim family. And um, it's one thing to call yourself a Christian, but once you identify as a baptized believer in Christ, that probably costs you your life and uh, you need to flee. And that can even come from family members. So there is water baptism, there's spirit baptism, there's the baptism of fire. Um, Mark chapter 10 and verse 38 talks about another kind of a baptism, and it is the baptism of suffering, uh, much like the baptism of fire, but that one may be a little bit different. There is a figurative use, surprise, surprise, in the Bible in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 2, that there is a figurative use of baptism saying being baptized in Moses. Now, that was a more of a Jewish-oriented, so that's not really a church or Christian concept, but it's the idea of, um, of baptism or um, um, uh, a figurative usage of Moses in that. And that brings me to the last one, and that is that there is a teaching usage of the, of the doctrine of baptism, meaning that baptism is something that teaches, that baptism is something that has um, um, a purpose behind it, that it demonstrates something. And that is what we really see is the, the underlying thing when it comes to the doctrine of water baptism uh, that we saw this morning. Now, the baptism for believers on the Lord Jesus Christ comes with it 
uh, uh, comes along with some uh, identifying marks, such as that uh, in Matthew chapter uh, 28, it says, you know, when we talk about the Great Commission, uh, going, therefore, uh, baptizing in the nations in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And so it has been noted throughout church history as that initiatory rite, R-I-T-E, that uh, was like the first step of a believer. Now, not, it cannot always happen at the beginning of a new believer's life when we trust Christ, but it happens uh, as a result of, and that uh, the order of things is, is that you trust Christ and then you are baptized. Now, among denominational distinctives, and I'm only mentioning the distinctives, I'm not trying to preach against them, but there are those that would um, uh, take a, a, a differing view, and there would be those that, you know, have practiced baptism, even with respect to babies. Um, it is probably best that if you're going to baptize a baby, you not do it by immersion, because you can get moms really mad at you. And um, John, uh, John Wesley actually had to leave the United States because as the Wesley brothers, and they were Methodist and where Methodism came from, that they were sprinkling babies. Well, they were baptizing babies, and he was dunking them. And babies, uh, you know, babies don't take to that. And, you know, being handed over to a guy and, that they don't know and then holding them underwater, that's kind of scary. I was really glad Ann didn't scream, but that she was kind of prepared. But uh, the idea is, is that, you know, uh, the, the idea there is, is that you're going to put them under. And so if you're going to baptize babies, now Baptists, we don't, but if you're going to, then probably sprinkling is the best mode. But um, we practice immersion because we would look at the word, baptizo, it means to dunk, to immerse. We would look at how it was practiced in the New Testament when uh, it talks about Jesus' baptism. Now, his baptism was identity in a sense with Israel, so it was a little bit of a different than what we did today. But Jesus' baptism, the word baptizo was used, and it says that when he came up out of the water, the spirit of dove came down in that, and, and there was much water there, and it would appear that then it was by immersion, by every, the use of the term, by the, where it was at, and what it was picturing. Uh, the early New Testament church as well, um, when um, in the book of Acts and in different places, they'll talk about, well, there's much water here, so therefore we, can, uh, we could be baptized, or you could be baptized. And so it isn't just something where you take a little bit of water, that it would be implied. Um, it's also implied, I believe, by what it pictures. And that's part of this, the teaching way that the word baptism is used, because in baptism by uh, immersion, there are several questions, therefore, in our practice as an ordinance. We only have two ordinances in, um, in our church. We have that of water baptism, and we have that of, which is believer's baptism, and we have communion, or the celebration of the Lord's table. We believe the Lord gave, uh, and that the Bible teaches two ordinances. Uh, we would believe that. It's in our confession. It's also in the uh, Westminster Confession of all the Presbyterians and in um, uh, other confessions as well the, uh, within Protestantism. So when we come to water baptism and what it pictures and so forth, there are several questions that need to come up. Number, the, the first question would be, why is baptism important? Just why would we do this this morning as part of a Sunday morning worship service during a pandemic? And at all the things that are involved in it. Well, it's important because, one, it's commanded. 
Um, really, baptism is not an option for a believer on the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, it was something that, it was a, a command that was given. Uh, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, it was practiced in the uh, early New Testament. It's also important because of what it symbolizes. It symbolizes our union with Christ. Now, I'm going to come back to that because that's the main theme of what I want to look at today. But in Galatians, in the book of Galatians, uh, chapter 3 and verse 27, again, it says in that passage, it shows our being united with Christ, identity with Christ. I, I identify with Christ and with him and not with anyone else. Uh, it is Christ that is going to save me. It's his righteousness. You know, when the Bible uh, points those things out of our need for righteousness, I don't have any righteousness where can I get the righteousness I need so that um, I can stand before God? If I don't have any, where can I get it? And it's in the righteousness of Christ. That's why his blood, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So therefore, the blood of Jesus had to be shed, and it has to be appropriated by me by faith. The book of Romans, again, we'll come back to that. But I appropriate that by faith. The just shall live by faith. And it shows my union with Christ, and that's how I get my righteousness, and that alone. So it, it symbolizes our union with Christ. Why it is important? Because it's a testimony to others. Historically, and in the book of Acts, it was the badge of discipleship. And uh, like I said, the cause of many that were martyred. So it is a testimony. It is a requirement for church membership. You might find that interesting, that as a member of um, a fellowship Baptist church, for those who want to join... It says in Acts chapter 2, they gladly received the word, and they were baptized, and then they were added unto the church. Now, unless you're going to go, and some have, to say that baptism adds you to the church, and, um, and it also is part of your salvation, um, then you have what's called baptismal regeneration. Now, I will guarantee you that uh, today, um, Anne only got wet. Um, she might, she might have felt some tingling, but that's only because the water's heated, okay? There was no actual chemical reactions or spiritual reaction, because it's just water, Lakeland City water and so forth, and, and um, it was just water. And so it doesn't actually, but it is a symbol of something, and it, we do it this particular way. It's a testimony, and it was that that then shows her identity with Christ, that she loves Christ, she was baptized, and she is added into the church, and she's a church member. So we voted on that a couple of weeks ago. It is a requirement for church membership. It is a, a testimony for the believer and for the members of the local church. Um, didn't you just love her testimony? So well stated, and it was a blessing to hear. But you see, she now maybe at your, um, um, at your baptism you didn't give a public word, but actually, the baptism itself is also a public testimony. I am identifying with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And Acts chapter 6, which we'll look at a little bit, that is why that we baptize and believe immersion is a good method of, and biblical method of, of, um, of, um, of, of baptizing people is by immersion because of what it pictures. I am in Christ. I have identified with him. When he died, I died. When he rose, I rose, and he is the guarantee of my resurrection. 
You see, it's, um, it's important because it's a preaching ordinance. It preaches the doctrine of Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I mean, that is the gospel. But, um, and what was demonstrated in the baptismal waters today. It is also, in a real sense, um, a, a, a demonstration of obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. And it was commanded, and therefore it shows love and obedience to Christ. It's a blessing. Uh, it's important because it's a blessing to believers and to members of the local church. Not just to hear the testimony, but it causes us to reflect upon um, those things that we actually um, have gone through and the day of our baptism. But another way that it teaches is, and this has brought confusion in today's world, and there are whole denominations, that they will only baptize in one name. Now, obviously, we are very big on, uh, uh, you know, it's all because of Christ and so forth, but they baptize only in Jesus' name. And uh, the book of Acts just even said, you know, it will say something about that they receive baptism in Jesus' name. Now, does that mean that we should not state the Trinity? Well, in Matthew chapter 28, it says, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. The Grace Brethren um, uh, denomination, they actually have what's called triune immersion. I went to their seminary, got a master's there. Which I baptize you in the name of the Father. And then they usually push the hair back because, you know, come on, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a totally different system. And they usually go forward, um, basically, because it's easier. So when you come up, then you got to push the hair back. I'm there, and I baptize you in the name of the Son. And they take them down. And in the name of the Holy Spirit. Because it is a teaching ordinance and preaching ordinance to emphasize the fact of each person of the Godhead, when we are saved, is involved. We're chosen uh, by the Father in Christ before the foundation of the world. And salvation comes to us by the work of the Holy Spirit. And they make a big um, uh, teaching opportunity uh, in baptism concerning that. Now, we go down once, and we mention the Trinity there, and to show the sense of the unity of the Godhead in salvation. But what it all comes down to when we reflect upon this in church history is that it teaches a sense of union with God in the demonstration of the salvation of a soul. I think that's the reason why we would then say also that uh, baptism is required for church membership, simply because why would you not want to be baptized if you want to join a local church that identifies as the body of Christ, but not follow that, that um, uh, to follow that. Well, a second question is, is how it's done, and I've already mentioned that enough. I don't think that we need to spend any time there. But then we come to this question of, then, who is baptized? Well, uh, negatively, uh, people that don't love Christ, they obviously should not be baptized. And, and we do not baptize infants. Uh, many baptize infants because of um, the doctrine and making equ equating that to circumcision of the Old Testament and so forth. Um, but we would tend to agree with the Bible that would say that you have to be a believer. Baptism is for those that have already accepted Christ. Um, Baptists have been known throughout um, our history as what is called believer's baptism. When uh, there's the denominational distinctives and all of that, there are two questions. The mode, that's all the water, how many times, how you do it, what is said. But it's also the candidate. Who should be baptized? 
a believer on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why should that be so true? Well, part of that is seen in, in Romans chapter 6. And that's what I want you, I've had you turn there. And I want us to look at this passage of Scripture. Now, this would be worthy of a complete, full, hour-long sermon. And we don't have time for that. Uh, and, and so I want to at least set this up. And I just want to identify some identifying marks at how this passage talks about baptism. But it's really talking about that it is for believers, and, uh, and what it accomplishes and so forth. Now, the passage itself actually begins uh, back in chapter 5, verse 20. As we all know, that the chapter divisions and the verse divisions are man-made. Those are not from God. It was a way of organizing it, and I'm really glad they did it that way. But uh, in this particular passage, we've got to go back up to verse 20. And so let's read the, the verses 20 and 21 of chapter 5. Follow along as I read. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. So we have the law, Ten Commandments, and the law of God to show us just how sinful we really are. Uh, we are sinners. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He's already mentioned much of this in the first um, um, uh, four chapters of the book of Romans. He condemns everyone. There's none righteous, no, not one. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded... And before you come to Christ, that is one identifying mark. You are confronted with the reality, I'm really a sinner. I'm really bad off. You know, I may not have done everything that I could have done, but the things that I have done are a stench in the nostrils of God. That I am depraved. I am totally depraved. I am a sinner. I am undone. And I cannot save myself. And, when, so, and the law keeps pounding that out. Jesus actually made the law even worse. You know, the law says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus came along and said, and any man that looks at a woman to commit um, a fornication with her has committed adultery already in his heart. Well, it's like, man, he just condemned all men carrying Y chromosomes. You see, that's the law. And he came in, and, and when we have law, it becomes heavy. It becomes uh, I am sinful. I am a sinful man. But now he says this. But when sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And that is the word that would be, could be translated and, and grace superabounded. It doesn't make any difference how sinful you are. There is enough grace with God to overshadow, to overtake, to overconsume your sin. Okay? So, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. So that, and that is the way to the, and this is a result, so that as sin reigned in death. You might say, if I was dead, then I couldn't sin. No, he's talking about spiritual death. That we are spiritually dead before we come to Christ. So we are dead in sin, so that as sin reigned when we were dead in death, even so, grace might reign through righteousness to the eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So again, I've got sin, but God's grace is greater than my sin. Sounds like a song, doesn't it? 
um, amazing grace, uh, grace unbounded. You know, I mean, that's why there's so many grace songs in Christianity. Because God's grace superabounds and there's more grace than sin. Now, God just doesn't blanketly show mercy and grace to everyone. If that were true, then the doctrine of universalism, that is that everybody's going to heaven, would be real. And yet Jesus clearly taught, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and uh, many there be that find it. And so grace and mercy is not universal. So what, how do I apprehend the grace of God? For by grace you are saved through faith. And that's the same thing that, you know, the idea the just shall live by faith. And so it is faith and faith alone. In the time of the Reformation, it was the idea of sola vide. It's by faith alone. That was the controversy of the day and age. Are we saved by faith plus works? Or are we saved by faith alone? What depends upon what you're going to have as your authority? If you're going to have theologians and churches and denominations and groups, then you're going to have faith plus works or whatever they want to add to it. But if you take what the Bible says, it's by faith and faith alone. For by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. So we are saved by grace through faith. So he says now, but now we've got this grace and it's superabounding. It's bigger than my sin. Now in chapter 6, again, remember, no chapter divisions here, we have what's called an antagonist. Uh, When you're writing, and uh, Paul is really good as he was writing to the believers at Rome, he's he's got an antagonist. He's got a guy here that's going to say, you know, say something, and then he's going to fight against that argument. So this is what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So this is the idea. If grace, if, if my sin is really bad and God's grace superbounds over my sin, well, what then? Can't I just superabound in sin and know that God's grace is always going to be there? So I can just live any way that I want. I can do whatever I want. It doesn't make any difference because God's grace. And so it's the idea. Is this a justification for, sin, for, for sinful living? There are actually people that say that. Now, they say that against those of us that believe that a person cannot lose their salvation. They say, well, if you can't lose it, then you can live any way that you want. You'll be okay. But if you're really saved, you don't want to live any way you want. You want to live every way that God wants. And you use the word of God to direct you in that. And so, But then that creates... a. Um, Some turmoil in the life. Look at what he now does with this. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound or that grace may superabound? And he he gives an immediate answer. Uh, New King James here says, certainly not. Um, um, The old King James says, uh, God forbid. Um, Others will say, heavens no. Uh, the Greek, if you want to know what the Greek is, it's just called megenoita. It was the way that you would, it was basically the strongest way you could just, it's kind of like, like, you know, you got this kid that is headed for the, a, a, a family heirloom of a vase. And they're getting ready to throw a toy right at the vase, a ball, to see if they can hit it. And as the mom 
or let's make this a little bit more applicable. The grandma uh, sees the ball ready to go. We babysat last night, so this did not happen. And so, and the ball is ready to go, and the grandparent yells out, no! You know, the slow motion, you know, the good movie TV kind of thing. No! That's what the meganota is. It was just a phrase that the Greeks would use. Certainly not. No! Heavens no! We don't sin to make God look good. But then he goes on, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Now, that's his thesis statement. Or do you not know? And the term know is used in this passage over and over. So he's talking about knowledge. Do you not know that as many of us, and he goes to the illustration of baptism, that as many of us as were baptized, and here's the phrase, into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. And again, that's why we would immerse and so forth. We, we identify with Christ in his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism unto death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, in her testimony, even made mentions of those kinds of things. You know, uh, I did not see what she had written or what she was going to say, but it just follows along in this passage. And the idea is we identify with Christ, we publicly confess Christ, and we want to live for Christ. That's what it's about. We go on. Verse 5. For if we had been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be known in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing, see there's that word again, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. This would be another reason why we believe in believer's baptism. When you baptize infants, for example, babies, all, all of this transaction and what this is picturing is not true in their life. It just, it can't be. It not, it's just not even a practical identity and thing like that. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, now, in a sense, we died with him as pictured in baptism and with our union with him, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing, see, this is all knowledge, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But that the life he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, now he's going to make the application. Likewise, you also reckon. Now, Paul was not a southerner talking about reckoning something. But it has the idea to consider. You, uh, and he's all been talking about the brain and to be thinking about this. He says, consider yourselves to be dead in deed to sin but alive unto God in Christ Jesus our Lord now in a couple of chapters Romans chapter 7 he's also going to go on to write that what I don't want to do I do and that what I don't want to that what I don't want to do I do and that what I want to do I don't do I find a principle law within me of sin and of death but Christ has given us the victory and where's that victory and the atoning work of the cross of Jesus Christ by saving faith 
So he's not denying a battle. He's not saying that we're going to become sinlessly perfect. But he's saying, are you united with Christ? It has everything to do with, are we in Christ? Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law. Remember, that just made sin abound. But you're under grace that God's testimony and your union with Christ will abound. Well, Paul, in writing to the church at Galatia, in chapter 3, he, he basically covers some of this same thing. But this is what he says. For you all are the sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So it's born again believers. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ. Now again, we showed that by way of illustration in water. But that's talking about having faith in him. Union with Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave or free, neither male or female. You are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So baptism has been considered the fit emblem of showing our identity in Christ. Our union with him. And at act of obedience and an act of identity I identify with Christ and Christ alone in his death burial resurrection it's in Christ and in Christ alone so the question for all of us here this morning is that where you are are you in Christ and identify in him alone or are you just saying, I don't want to have anything to do with Christ? Or are you trying to add to the finished work of Christ? There's only one way. Jesus put it this way in the Gospel of John, chapter 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. He did not say, by me and good works. It's by Christ and Christ alone. Do you know Christ as your personal Savior? For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, nothing else added. Lest any man should boast, it's Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I pray that the importance of this being united in Christ would find its mark in all of our hearts. Father, today we rejoice that Don Hubbard is in heaven. Oh, he was a great guy, good storyteller, good jokester, hardworking, went on uh, well over 100 um, uh, missions trips, helped people, benevolent, a wonderful man. And all of that is filthy rags before you. But the one thing he did have was faith in Christ. He had bowed 
to the authority of Christ and Christ alone. And Jesus said, saved him. And the hope that we have that one day we'll see him again doesn't come from him. It comes from his Savior who said, Whosoever shall come unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Our Father, today, as we close this service, may we pay close attention to the words rejoicing, but we also reflecting on our faith in Christ or our lack of it. And Father, may the Spirit of God work in our hearts as we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.